0: From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy, broadcasting this week from Monroe, Louisiana. The bombshell leak of a Supreme Court draft decision savaging the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision dominated this week's headlines. Writing for the Trump-packed right-wing majority... Samuel Alito goes far, far beyond striking down Roe. He also strikes down more than 50 years of precedent, and even the reasoning respected justices followed to reach their conclusions. Nakedly partisan, profoundly political— this document leaves many Americans feeling like a child who stumbles upon a drunk parent for the first time, disoriented, frightened, and abandoned. So this is what's behind the curtain, Dorothy. How did we get to this point? After all, the 5-2 majority of the Burger Court comprised four Republican appointees— and one of the two dissenting justices, was appointed by a Democrat, Roe v. Wade was an overwhelmingly Republican ruling. Then as now, people of good conscience were struggling with the fundamental question, when does life begin? Here is an important passage from the text of the majority decision in Roe. We need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins. When those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus, the judiciary in this point, in the development of man's knowledge— is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. That was 1973. This central truth has not changed since then. Science has its criteria. Different religious traditions have irreconcilably different answers, leaving the solution to an inherently political majoritarian process guarantees the trampling of the deeply held beliefs of millions of Americans. But that's exactly what repealing Roe would guarantee. Now this moment in our history is not some kind of watershed with the dedicated anti-choice industry having patiently persuaded the rest of us to their point of view or science having opened our eyes through careful research and education, it is instead dominated by an authoritarian minority, cynically leveraging a moment of great national division and turmoil to ram through its agenda. This is the agenda that led to the Helms Amendment, which forbids the use of U.S. foreign aid to fund abortion services, which has led to immeasurable suffering, sickness, and death in some of the poorest nations of the world. It's the agenda that justified the murder of abortion providers and the harassment of countless women, who have made the excruciating choice to terminate a pregnancy. It's the agenda that has demonized pro-choice Americans, including a sitting president as baby killers and eager promoters of what they call abortion on demand. And now it seems likely that this self-righteous condescending and arrogant agenda is poised to undo a Supreme Court precedent that comports with both science and many-faith traditions. Despite all the ugly and deafening hype, the number of abortions caused by Roe v. Wade since 1973 stands at exactly zero. In fact, statistics show conclusively that abortion rates are pretty much the same or even go down when abortion is legalized. What does verifiably reduce the number of terminated pregnancies is comprehensive sex education, access to birth control, and Quality affordable health care All three are things the anti Roe zealots also despise. So where does that leave us with more unwanted and or severely disabled babies desperate for public financial support and health care? services the same anti-Roe theocrats are equally desperate to eliminate. So if all of this religious fervor is shockingly recent, and if the likeliest outcome of blocking legal abortion access is not fewer but more abortions, as well as scores of injured or dead pregnant Americans, what do they really want? Writing in Religion News Service, Dr. Robert P. Jones, CEO of the Public Religion Research Institute, observes that again and again, opposition to Roe is linked to other political religious right positions on race. Immigration, education, poverty, and health care. Robbie points out that in polling, followers of every religious tradition but two support legal abortion by a large margin, white evangelicals and Latino Protestants being the only exception. So this isn't about religion either. It is about authoritarianism. And Robbie writes, it is about white Christian nationalism. Six decades of American jurisprudence and precedent stand to fall if the reasoning of the leaked Alito decision becomes the law of the land. A constitutional right to privacy, gone. And with it, marriage equality, and numerous other seminal rulings based on this expansive understanding of the Constitution and who we are as a nation. Instead, we're left with the bleak image Dr. Jones presents in his closing argument. Just as Trump disregarded the damage he did to the office of the presidency, This court looks poised to shrug off the damage this baldly partisan ruling may do to the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. This decision is not just about abortion. It represents just one, albeit powerful, part of a multi-pronged, desperate effort by a shrinking and aging group while they still wield power to impose their vision of a 1950s white Christian America on an increasingly diverse nation. End quote. Due to a COVID outbreak among our staff, we're not in a position to bring you fresh interviews this week. Interviews that would inevitably consist mostly of the speculation that abounds all over the media right now anyway. Instead, we'll take this time to review some of the key conversations that I've had on the topic of religion, government, and abortion on past episodes of State of Belief. It's a context that I think is particularly important at this moment in our history. Dr. Jonathan Dudley is the author of Broken Words, a book examining how the political-religious right has repositioned evangelical beliefs to serve its own agenda. He highlights the arbitrary way abortion suddenly became murder. Patricia Miller offers similar insights about the Catholic Church and how a matter of personal conscience became sacred doctrine. Today, the religious background of Supreme Court justices is critical in understanding the lens through which they view the rights that the Constitution grants to everyone. Not long ago, it may have seemed esoteric, but when expert court watcher Dahlia Lethwick did it on our show in 2009, it turns out to have been a foreshadowing. Attorney Dr. J. Michaelson's expertise on the workings of the court and its relationship with the culture and public opinion is always invaluable. Last year, Jay was here to talk about what was likely coming our way, re row. We'll revisit that conversation later in the hour. Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it. You can do it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a very sincere thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now from 2012, Jonathan Dudley, author of Broken Words, The Abuse of Science and Faith in American Politics.
1: So one of the things that I talk about in my book is that evangelicals actually did not always believe that life begins at conception. And in fact, this belief only became widespread among evangelicals. In the 1980s, uh, prior now, now wait, to, wait,
0: wait, wait, just a minute. I want to be sure I heard you right. That that this literally in the 1980s became an issue, and it wasn't before that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you you can find minor exceptions here and there, but evangelicals did not widely believe the Bible teaches that life begins at conception until the 1980s. And in fact, prior to Roe v. Wade, uh, there were many evangelical symposia that were uh, calling for looser abortion laws, um, Christianity Today, for example, had a special issue on contraception and abortion, in which the leading article um, by a professor from Dallas Theological Seminary argued that clearly the Bible teaches that life begins at birth. And this was widespread by evangelicals at the time. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention hosted, uh, sponsored a resolution to advocate for more loose abortion laws. The Christian Medical Society argued that abortion should be permissible in cases of family instability. So there's a much more lenient uh, attitude towards abortion prior to the, the 1970s among evangelicals, and it was based on a belief that was widely held in the evangelical community that the Bible teaches that life begins at birth. Uh,
0: trace a little more, if you will, the evolution of these changes.
1: I was surprised by myself. I grew up evangelical, and like most evangelicals, I just took it for granted that the Bible clearly teaches that life begins that conception. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened was that the evangelical right emerged in the mid-1970s, largely as a response to issues like the sexual revolution, and also uh, the government interference in Christian schools. And initially, abortion wasn't a big part of its focus. That mm-hmm. kind of got picked up later in the 1970s um, when Francis Schaeffer wrote a book about abortion with uh, C. Everett Koop, mm-hmm. uh, basically arguing that it was a symptom of the decline of Christian values in America. And that had a pretty big impact on evangelicals. And so Jerry Falwell's Moral Majority, which started around that time, picked up the issue of abortion and added it to the other issues it was advocating and began you know, widely disseminating the idea that you know abortion is, is murder and abortion... Uh, reflects uh, anti-Christian beliefs. And they also began to cooperate with Roman Catholic organizations who had believed, for, for many other reasons, that life begins at conception since the mid-1800s. Mm-hmm. So evangelicals kind of adopted that belief, that life begins at conception, and began reinterpreting the Bible to teach what Roman Catholics believe about abortion so that they could form this coalition where they both had the same beliefs and where you know, they decried abortion in the harshest terms As I say in my book, it's a lot harder in a a political world, hostile to nuances and fine Mm -hmm. distinctions to to say that, you know, abortion is wrong but not murder. Mm -hmm. So evangelicals kind of adopted the the most extreme position they could um, and began disseminating this to lay evangelicals. And by the mid-1980s, there was a professor in New Zealand, actually, who wrote a book about uh, biotechnology, and he had a chapter that talked about abortion. And, uh, you know, he basically argued the same position as evangelicals around 1970, that, uh, you know, the embryo isn't a full-fledged person, but because it's a potential person, it should be treated with respect. And this was published by InterVarsity Press mm-hmm. in the, around, I think it was 1984, and there was such a huge outcry from evangelicals in response to this book, which basically articulated beliefs the culture had widely held 15 years earlier, mm-hmm. that InterVarsity Press, press was forced to withdraw the book, because it was the first book they'd ever had to withdraw in mm-hmm. half a century in business. So well, this is a really rapid shift that occurred um, in the early 1980s. And by the by the end of the 1980s, uh, you know, it was even more universally understood that this was the new evangelical belief.
0: Well, so, have, you, have you found anybody in the—any uh, leadership in the evangelical community or among Catholic bishops, say— that would own up to the fact that this sea change in thought occurred.
1: Uh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not controversial that this happened. Actually, well, when I was researching my book, I would say the majority of my my the sources that I initially encountered this uh, this fact in were were actually written by people who opposed abortion, hmm. and they were referring to this history as you know how we you know we must stop and we should have been against it earlier. Um, there's an article in Christianity Today about this. There's a book by Paul Fowler that's mm-hmm. about this. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not controversial that this change happened. Um, you know, what is controversial is the significance of this change.
0: But it, well, um, what, but it wasn't a change in interpretation of the Bible that did it, was it?
1: You know, I think it was the change in interpretation of the Bible followed the change in belief exactly. about abortion.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: Um, yeah. And What I think is most interesting is that here you have evangelicals widely believing the Bible clearly teaches that life begins at birth in the late 1960s, -hmm. to widely believing the Bible clearly teaches that life begins at conception in the mid-1980s. And I think that kind of undermines the idea Mm -hmm. that it's so obvious, if it was, you wouldn't expect this dramatic reversal of position, or you wouldn't have expected thoughtful scholars previously to hold a completely contradictory position. Um, and I think that just reflects the fact that the change in interpretation reflected shifting political ideology and shifting goals in the political world.
0: A really creative person has no trouble developing a theology to support their politics.
1: That's right. Uh-huh.
0: Well, do you, I mean, this is—for uh, those of us who believe government policy should not rely on particular interpretation of the Bible, this is a— doubly frustrating situation, because I hear you saying it's actually a modern reinterpretation of Scripture being presented as the same absolute and timeless moral truth that was changed. Is that right?
1: Right. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh, you would have to be an evangelical to understand that.
1: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it was was shocking to me when I learned about that. (laughs) Well,
0: since writing the book. has Uh has watching what's going on in our public rhetoric added to your understanding of this issue?
1: Um, Yeah, I would say it has. You know, I think one one of the things I find most interesting is um, how evangelicals, how they think about abortion, kind of diverges from Catholics in that evangelicals tend to support, say, capital punishment. They tend to support war in more circumstances than the general population. And it makes you question, like, how their anti-abortion position fits into their broader values. And, you know, the rhetoric is that this is about respecting human life and a culture of respect for human life. But people who, like Catholics, who who hold that position generally don't support war as much Mm -hmm. as evangelicals do, don't support capital punishment. Um... And I think it's also interesting that evangelicals were against the Equal Rights Amendment for women. They are widely against that in the mid-1970s before they were against abortion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think this issue really got picked up because it kind of reflected a reaction to the sexual revolution, a reaction to the change in gender norms. Um, and I think that explains why evangelicals can be very opposed to abortion but simultaneously very supportive of things like the Iraq War because it's not flowing so much out of a generalized high view of human life so much as out of a uh, rejection of uh, the, the new gender norms that were ushered in in America with the sexual revolution.
0: We're just getting started with this week's show. Up next, a Catholic historian's take on the church and reproductive rights. Also, Daya Lithwick on the Supreme's faith. And attorney Jay Michaelson tries mightily not to say, that "We told you so." You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. I'm Welton Gaddy. In 2014, historian Patricia Miller was with us to talk about her book titled Good Catholics, The Battle Over Abortion in the Catholic Church. What made you want to write this book?
2: I was just really struck by how much abortion discourse has come to dominate The life of the Catholic Church, that just wasn't the way it was 20 or 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. You could happily go to church for years and participate in parish activities and honestly never hear the word abortion mentioned. It was not the marker of what made a good Catholic. And it seems like nowadays that's become really the demarcation between what is a good Catholic and not a good Catholic is someone adhering to a very strict anti-abortion position. I was curious as how that came to be.
0: The disconnect between how most people think doctrine is formed and how it sometimes is actually formed is nothing less than breathtaking. And then that doctrine makes its way into the secular world to radically influence public policy. Talk briefly about the way the development of the pill was handled by the Catholic Church.
2: It shouldn't surprise anyone that the development of Catholic doctrine, like so many other things, is at the end of the day fundamentally political. There was a movement in the 60s to approve birth control. It was very consistent with Catholic doctrine. A very famous judge and author, Noonan, wrote a book called Contraception and really laid out all the reasons that Catholic doctrine did not say you couldn't use contraception. It was kind of a hodgepodge of myths and theology and folk beliefs and long-term old-school prohibitions against using contraception because there was an interest in growing the population back in the days when there weren't a lot of people around. And he said, you know, there's really no reason we can't change that. A lot of theologians believed that the doctrine could be changed, that it was really based on a very outmoded idea of marriage, which was that marriage was primarily for procreation and that in the modern world, the Church had already recognized that marriage was both for procreation and also for companionship and for the completion of the person within the relationship of marriage. And so they said, you know, there's no reason we can't change this because we've already recognized when we said you could use natural family planning, which is the rhythm method, that Catholics could limit their family size. So why not just change the doctrine? It was really just changing the method that was allowable, not whether family planning itself was allowable. The reason that didn't happen was political. There was a small faction within the church that felt very strongly that the church's authority on these issues was tied to not being seen as wrong on the issue ever. And there was really a underlying belief that to give women the right to decide when and if they got pregnant was going to change the way the church viewed women. They viewed women still as primarily a mother and defined by their biological function. And when they really looked at what that change in contraception doctrine would mean to that idea of women, they backed down and they did not change it. It was a very political decision at the end of the day.
0: And where did the pressure come from for the decision going the way it did.
2: The belief is that there was a small group of thinkers within the Vatican, about four bishops who famously wrote a minority report to the mainstream report. Interestingly enough, the Pope's own commission on birth control said the doctrine should be changed. It was a minority report written by four dissenting theologian priests that really held sway over a much larger group of both bishops and laypeople who did decide the doctrine should be changed.
0: So it didn't just come down from heaven? It did not come down from heaven. It came from actual humans. There's an amazing quotation that you attribute to a theologian of the period who asked what would happen to the millions we've sent to hell for using contraception if the teaching were suddenly changed. Now, was that theology, or was that politics? That was
2: politics, and I think that was human pride. It was the <laughs> sense that if we admitted we were wrong, we would look foolish, and so therefore we must hold on to a incorrect belief in the face of all the overwhelming evidence that it is, fact, incorrect. And you can see a lot of what's happened in the Catholic Church ever since then, has been trying to cover that up and explain that and paper that over. And that's why there's, I think, so much instability in the Church doctrine around all the sexuality-related issues, because that doctrine was so fundamentally flawed.
0: Patty, I, I don't mean to sound cynical here, because I have appreciation for the Catholic Church, but I've read the formative theologians of the Catholic Church, the ancient ones, And when you read Augustine and Aquinas and those people, I have to say they were so screwed up on sexuality that they couldn't have done anything else but put the Church in a confused situation.
2: That's very true. And they were even more screwed up, unfortunately, on women because they saw women as really a lesser version of men. I think it was Augustine who called women a misbegotten creature. So anything that had to do with women and sex is just kind of polluted from the get-go by that understanding. And that's exactly what the modern theologians were trying to look at when they suggested revising the birth control doctrine, because they said, our understanding of woman has evolved. So let's look at that doctrine in light of how we view women nowadays. And when that didn't happen, it unfortunately kept a lot of those historical undertones about women and sex in the Catholic doctrine that should have been excavated right about 1968.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When you look at the endless lawsuits over the contraception coverage mandate today, how much difference do you think it would make if this history was more widely known?
2: People would have laughed the bishops and their allies right out of the courts when they came forward with these lawsuits because not only do most Catholics use contraception, but the doctrine is so theologically unsound and was so close to being changed that I really think they would have no viability on this issue if this was better known.
0: What about abortion in Church history?
2: Abortion, too, has a very interesting history where it was viewed at different times in different ways. The Church has always taught that abortion is a sin, But the Catholic Church did not teach until very recently that abortion was murder. Much like society in general, the Catholic Church recognized that the human fetus gains value as the pregnancy progresses. Early abortion was not considered murder, much as in common law in this country and in other countries, abortion before a fetus had what they used to call quickened, which was about the fourth Mm -hmm. or fifth month when the woman could feel the fetus moving, That was not considered murder. That was considered before the fetus was a definable human being separate from the mother, and that was treated separately than murder. It was considered serious, and in some cases a sin, but there was much more leeway for abortion than people think of in Catholic theology.
0: When I grew up in the evangelical tradition, Catholics were only questionably Christian, and... Yet the evangelical churches have taken the hard line Catholic doctrine and made that their doctrine.
2: I think it's a it's a very fascinating development of the past especially twenty years. We just recently hit the twentieth anniversary of a very landmark declaration called Catholic and Evangelicals Together. Right. Where the evangelicals agreed to set aside their historic taste of Catholicism to team up with conservative Catholics on the life issues.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's
2: when you really begin to see this very hardcore Catholic doctrine about abortion, but increasingly about contraception also, which evangelicals historically never had really had objections to contraception one way or the other. They tended to be at least agnostic about the issue. One of my contentions of my book is this far-right Catholic distaste for contraception has really, in Infected the Christian right in
0: some yeah. ways as well. Yeah. There's more to hear from our guest relevant to the current crisis at the Supreme Court. The religious background on the justices was a focus when I spoke to Dahlia Lithwick in 2009. And Attorney Jay Michaelson with some of the warnings we should have heeded. Now, if you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows. All of that at stateofbelief.com. I'm Welton Gaddy. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, religion and radio done differently. Supreme Court analyst Dahlia Lithwick was with us in 2009 to delve into a topic that was rarely discussed— but is incredibly relevant today, the religious background of the Supreme Court justices. We turn our attention to a subject of perennial interest to me, religion and the Supreme Court. Uh, Let me just say, I have grave ambivalent concerns about such a discussion myself. Historically, I have advocated no religious test for public officials, confident that was the intent of framers of the Constitution. But should we now risk such a discussion? Should people who are elevating the religion factor benefit from the silence of those who think religion should not be a factor? Dahlia Lithwick, you say that once upon a time there was an outright religious litmus test for Supreme Court appointees. Today, religion's almost irrelevant in appointing new justices. Isn't that a good thing?
3: Well, I think at one level, it is a good thing. I think that, you know, there was a time that you could not get a Catholic onto the Supreme Court in this country. That's how biased uh we were. There was a time where you couldn't get a Jew onto the Supreme Court. And obviously, diversity uh is better than that. And, and there's certainly a possibility that that speaks to a spirit of tolerance and pluralism where it comes to religion. But I'm not convinced we are tolerant and pluralistic where it comes to religion in this country. Uh, so I think that the act of not speaking about the fact that there are currently six Catholics on the court is its own form of problem. I think it it masks the fact that we do have very, very, very real and grave religious differences.
0: During the Sotomayor confirmation hearings, the press... Talked an awful lot about race and gender and ethnicity, and, and they pretty much neglected religion. Why is religion different? I, I can't believe it's all because of the Constitution. <laughs>
3: I don't think it's because of the Constitution, because as you said, we used to we used to talk very explicitly about religion in the court. I think it's almost a a matter of fashion. I think it's become very unfashionable to talk about religion. It's very awkward. It's considered very uh, intimate. Whereas talking about, you know, and think of the Sotomayor conversation, we were so proud uh, to talk about her Hispanic heritage, to talk about the ways in which her gender would inform her judging. I mean, it wasn't just that she was a woman, it was that she was going to bring this rich experience to the court. So it's so paradoxical that then when you come to talking about religion, there's this sense that, oh my God, we don't want to even intimate that she would bring some piece of that to her judging. It looks as though it's on a collision course with her jurisprudence. And so I think there's this funny anxiety about it, and certainly anybody who writes about the religion of the justices gets absolutely walloped. So I think that we've got this self-perpetuating cycle wherein... Right now, it's just very fashionable to talk about diversity in terms of race and gender and even sexual orientation, uh, disability. It's extremely unfashionable to talk about diversity or pluralism in terms of religion.
0: You point out that uh, Justice Scalia says the fact that so little was said about religion is evidence that religion doesn't divide us anymore. What do you make of that argument?
3: I think that he, it's a very compelling argument to say, you know, we used to be riven by religious differences. And the fact that we don't talk about it means that it doesn't matter that America's just past religious division. But I also point out in the same article that recently uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, of all people, was asked about diversity on the court. And she just sort of blurted out uh, without being, without being asked about. Uh, religious diversity, she was asked about geographic diversity, she simply blurted out, quote, I don't think all the justices should be of one faith, and I don't think they should all be from one state. Mm-hmm. So clearly his colleague O'Connor is bothered uh, by by the fact that all the justices seem to be increasingly of one faith. So I don't think that Scalia is quite right that we're past it. I think that the problem we have is when we start to think about the possibility that a justice's religious views as opposed to gender or race, inform their jurisprudence, it starts to get very, very hard to connect Mm -hmm. the dots. And I think that smokes out all sorts of anxiety about judicial philosophy, about originalism, all sorts of anxiety that's much more profound than the the, the simple anxiety about how, how, say, race or gender divides us.
0: Dahlia, why is it that we give so much attention to the religion of our elected officials. It's even prominent in the stump speeches in their campaigns, and yet we, we don't carry that over to our discussions of justices. How do they escape that fate?
3: Well, I think the nut of it is that anxiety you articulated at the very beginning. We're terrified of having a religious litmus test for the court. Uh, It seems to be so blatantly in conflict with our constitutional values. But as I grappled with this question myself in writing this article, it really finally occurred to me that because we have this utterly secular system of government, we've come to elevate the court into almost a secular national church. Mm. And I think absolutely Americans think of the Constitution as a secular holy text. I mean, this is our founding foundational almost religious tax, and I think that because the court has become, uh, as compared to uh, you know, Congress or the White House, it's become the branch of government in which we have to have some enormous amount of faith that it is following this this document, that it is applying neutrally the law to inject a conversation about religion into something that is almost religious in and of itself feels like a violation. It feels like a kind of heresy. And I really do, as I struggle with this question myself, think that we've elevated the court to something akin to a church in this country, and then we have to really avoid talking about other religions and how that may influence
0: Mm. our high
3: church that is the court.
0: That's a terrific answer. Uh, It's a highly debated question, but does a Catholic majority on the Supreme Court make a difference in how cases are decided. And, and and let me just give you a pragmatic, and you can respond to both, or neither or either. Uh, I have to wonder if the political activism of the bishops is partly a motivating factor in more people being willing to talk about religion and the judiciary.
3: I think that's probably right. I think that this is a funny confluence of the bishops having an enormous influence, for instance, uh, on the health reform debate at the same moment that it appears that the court has done really a whiplash quick change on its abortion jurisprudence, uh, and the difference in the change over a very, very compressed amount of time between a court that was willing to allow partial birth abortion in 2000 and then and then said it, deemed it unconstitutional just a short few years later was the substitution of Samuel Alito for Sandra Day O'Connor. So certainly the argument has been made. I'm not sure how persuasively that that was the impact of having a fifth Catholic justice on the court. So I think that both, uh, you know, if people are more willing to say that in a way they weren't. That's interesting that abortion doctrine changed when the, the really fundamental change became one of, of uh, the composition of the court. But I think also, as you point out, there seems to be a sense that um, we're talking more openly in this country about the role of religion in the law.
0: Attorney Rabbi J. Michelson is a frequent guest with deep expertise on the working of the high court. Here are some thoughts he shared with us last year on State of Belief Radio.
4: So this is a case challenging a Mississippi abortion law, which effectively bans abortion after 15 weeks, which is an advance uh, from where Roe v. Wade had it. Uh, Basically, it sort of slides the the goalposts and makes it just that much harder to get an abortion. And the only real question in the case is whether the Supreme Court will allow a little restriction, a lot of restriction, or actually just throw out Roe v.ersus Wade entirely.
0: Hmm. How, How did this case make it all the way to the Supreme Court?
4: Well, this case is designed to make it all the way to the Supreme Court. In fact, a number of states are kind of falling all over each other, trying to get a case that goes to the Supreme Court to test Roe versus Wade. Uh, since we know that three of the court's six conservatives were specifically vetted uh, to overturn Roe versus Wade. I mean, this is what they were created for. This is why they came up through the system and why they were suggested by the Federalist Society and why they were appointed by Donald Trump. So the idea of these laws is just, blatantly challenge Roe versus Wade. So in this case, the lower court opinion said, well, this is obviously unconstitutional. This is clearly against Roe versus Wade. And that's the whole point. Uh, the point was to make it as easy as possible to lose at the district court level and then the circuit court level uh, so they could get right to the Supreme Court. Yeah.
0: Jay, how much of this is about religious dogma and how much of it is science and medicine?
4: Oh, uh, 100 to zero. There is certainly no science or medicine, especially around the 15-week line. The only significance of 15 is that it's less than 24, which is the Roe versus Wade number, and more than zero. Um, there's no scientific basis for this whatsoever. Uh, this is just politics. Um, it's no secret that uh, Donald Trump won the, uh, the election in, 20, uh, in 2016 uh, because of the support of the hard right, the religious right, so-called religious right. Uh, and this is payback. And they knew exactly why they were voting for him. Uh, and this was what this was, you know, one of the main reasons. And so uh, this is entirely whether you want to call it religion or politics, this is catering to a part of the Republican. Base.
0: Well, Jay, the um, really good piece that you wrote uh, this last week makes the reader think that you think it's going to be up there and be shot down. I- is that right?
4: Yeah, I don't think there's any question that Roe is going to be severely limited by this case. Uh, the question is how severely. And again, that could range from totally overturning the law and allowing all abortion, uh, restrictions, including total bans. It could be chipping away. It could be a little bit technical about what the standard is for chipping away at Roe. So there's kind of a range of, for pro-choice people, a range of bad news. Uh, and we won't know for some time which of those is chosen, but I'd be, extremely surprised uh, if if this case leaves current law uh, in place the way it is now. The abortion right hinges in, in it, it doesn't have the strongest textual foundation. Obviously, there's nothing in the Constitution which says that women have the right to control their own bodies. But that principle uh, that women as a subset of people have the right to control their own bodies uh, in this democracy uh, is seen to be kind of embedded uh, in the Constitution and in the Bill of Rights. But there's no sentence which says women have the right to control their own bodies. Wow. And so the foundation for the abortion right is what's sometimes called the right to privacy. We might really think of it as the right to bodily integrity. It's the right that I, as a human being, have not given my body over to the state uh, to be regulated. And however, the state feels like doing it. Um, to me, that's, you know, that's a very clear principle. Uh, but that's not something that's written in the text of the Constitution. And so the people who are originalists or textualists who take a very sort of narrow, like if it's not written in the text of the Constitution, it's not a constitutional right, you know, Roe is very vulnerable. So I would not expect, it's it's it'll be one of those weird cases where everyone on one side of the argument is sort of secretly motivated by a religious teaching or, or pleasing a religious con- uh, constituency but what we're talking about on the surface is this matter of constitutional theory. I see. Um, of course, it's ironic that the same justices who will invent this whole set of rights uh, in one case are saying that, well, if it's not written down in the case of Roe versus Wade, it doesn't exist.
0: What's a citizen to do at this point? Uh, because it's in the hands of, of the court. They're the only ones that can do anything at this point, regardless of what everyone else is saying. Do, do you see it that way, or is there any give and take that might change during the, the whole process?
4: No, it's too late. Uh, it's too late for, for this right, it's too late for this court, and it's too late for this case. Uh, this is part of what's challenging about this issue. People's eyes glazed over when, you know, we talk about Supreme Court uh, nominees, certainly other, other court nominees, um, because it's, you know, it's talked about at the hearings, but it, it nothing really happens. So the justice is put on the court, is seated, and then we all move on to other things, uh, you know, and then a year or two later, some case like this comes along and all of a sudden people are getting angry, but it's too late to get angry. I actually want to throw in a little optimistic uh, note here. My assumption is this case is going to go badly for the pro-choice side and that many states are going to enact very significant abortion restrictions, if not total bans, uh, very soon. Uh, within a year. Um, that is actually not what a, a large majority of Americans support. Uh, it's a little tricky because Americans say, oh, about 80% of Americans say that Roe versus Wade should be left alone. That's an astonishing number, right? That means that includes about 60% of Republicans, right? So mm-hmm. that's a huge number. It's tricky because most people don't really know what Roe versus Wade really says. And so they say, well, but some restrictions could be should be allowed. So it's not really clear what that means. But there's certainly a clear pro-choice majority for the core right that women have to control their own body, yeah. right? That, mm-hmm. that is, a, a ver- it's not a close case. So this is a minority opinion that the Supreme Court is going to impose on the United States. And when these state legislatures start passing these abortion restrictions, then it'll be time for citizens to do something, right? It'll be time to flip as many of those state houses as possible. It'll be time for this to be the number one issue for many voters, not just one among many. Uh, And it'll be a time to really look at this in the Congress as well, right? I mean, if we didn't have the kind of um, compromised confirmation processes that we had for these three Trump appointees, right? Remember, all three are there under a shadow, right? Justice Gorsuch, his seat belonged to Merrick Garland. Um, Justice Kavanaugh, unaddressed sexual assault and rape allegations with more evidence that came out after his hearings that made it seem even more likely that uh, Dr. Blasey Ford was telling the truth. Um, and Justice Barrett, who was rushed in the election, even though the, the same Senate had just said, the same people said a few years ago, no, we have to wait a whole year. So all three of these have kind of a cloud over them, mm-hmm. uh, and they are going to be in the majority of this decision. And so it's time to really connect the dots. So, yes, it's too late for a citizen to do anything about this case. Uh, but it's not too late to make sure that the next one doesn't happen. And the way to do that is to is to have state legislatures that reflect people, and that remove these outrageous voting restrictions, which continue to have been passed in the last several months, so that we can actually have free and fair elections. And make this an issue that matters in the 2022 congressional midterm. Uh, this should be, if the timing goes the way I think it will go, this should be one of the major issues next year. And that's when it's time to get involved.
0: Dr. Jay Michelson is an author, an attorney, and an activist. He's also a rabbi and a meditation teacher who balances all of these roles in a wise and graceful way, still finding time to always answer when we call at State of Belief. Jay Michelson's books include God versus Gay, the Religious case for equality and enlightenment by trial and error, 10 years on the slippery slopes of Jewish spirituality, postmodern Buddhism, and other mystical heresies. Jay, we just are very grateful. It's my pleasure. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. I hope what we have done today will be of help to you as we go into what's happening right before us. Your donations help keep us on the air. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And Take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and be a part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I would ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week, one person for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org and be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, you all take care of each other. I'm Welton Gaddy, that state of belief.
1: The only one who
2: could ever reach me
1: was the son of a preacher man, the only who could ever teach me Was well, the son of a preacher man, you see what he was He